0: Today I'm offering a sermon on the topic of marriage and I am qualified to teach on marriage because I have marriage configured out perfectly. (laughs) I crush it daily. This seemed like a good idea about six months ago when the staff team got together and said, you know, we need some teachings on some really practical topics. Why don't you try stuff like marriage? And so um that's what we're doing, and I actually do think that this is a great idea in this sense. Holding up whatever major part of your life, and we all have different parts of our lives, but holding up whatever the major parts of your life are and saying, what difference does Jesus make with this part of my life? What difference does being a Christian make in this part of my life? That is a great question. That is a super question you probably view your life as a whole of parts. Maybe you have four, five, six parts. Maybe there's the school part, there's the sports part, there's the friends part, and there's the living at home with your parents part. Okay, um, I'm looking at these guys, um, not Tom. Um, for Tom, maybe there's the work part, there's the family part, there's the personal growth part. Different parts, all related right? But different parts. And so the question we're asking is, what difference does Jesus make in each one of those parts, those specific parts of your life? And if we don't know, if we can't answer that question with some sense of clarity, then it would be reasonable to say that Jesus makes no difference, or at best, very little difference in that part of your life. Say you've got five parts of your life, and you're like, I have... I, I don't know how Jesus even comes close to relating to this part of my life. Then he would say, well, then Jesus or your faith in Christ is arguably irrelevant to like 20% of your life. Or maybe G- you don't know where Jesus fits in in like maybe three or four parts of your life. Now we're talking about a very frustrating experience of espousing your life to Christ, saying, I want to follow Christ. I believe in Christ. I just don't get, and therefore... My faith really doesn't make much difference in most of my life. Now, if you're beginning a relationship with Jesus, like you've recently become a Christian or maybe you're just considering being a Christian or maybe you're beginning again and this time you're 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 trying at a deeper level, you're intending on a deeper level to take the teachings of Christ seriously, and so you're you're leaning into being a disciple. You're leaning into actively actually living out your faith in Christ. An honest answer to the question, what difference does Jesus make in this part of your life? It might be, I don't know, right? And that would be fine. That might be your honest answer for 20% of your life, 40% of your life, 75% of your life, because you're just beginning. You're just at the start. You're just beginning to seriously consider Jesus and his teachings as they interact with the various specific parts of your life. And that's totally fine. If you are seriously considering how to surrender more of your life to to Jesus, you're heading in the right direction. Like that's really a good thing to consider and to work through and to try to figure out. Jesus lays claim to all of our life, all of the time, right? He wants every single part of our life. At one point, Jesus is challenged to summarize God's expectations of humanity. And his answer is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. Oh, and also love your neighbor as yourself. This is a description of entire devotion to God. With all that you are in every part of your life, nothing gets held back. Nothing is not included. This is clearly the depth of devotion to which we are called by Christ, but many of us struggle to know how to live this out practically in the various specific parts of our life, whether it's recess or retirement, whether it's running the kids all around town to all their activities or sitting alone in your grief. What difference does Jesus make practically in this part of my life? There may be parts of your life where you know exactly what difference Jesus makes. And there may be other parts of your life you have just no idea. You really actually do need help connecting dots to see how being a Christian actually makes a difference in this part of your life. What difference does Jesus make in this part of my life? Or asked another way, and maybe this is a more helpful way to ask the same question, What are some basic biblical principles that shape the ways Christians live in these various parts of their lives? What are some basic Christian principles of parenting, for instance? What are some basic Christian principles that have to do with money or managing it? Are there some ways that followers of Jesus approach life and do life differently, maybe, than people who aren't followers of Jesus? Are there actual differences, specific differences, associated with a life of devotion to Jesus. Clarity on that question is critical. It's the clarity that's so helpful. It's the clarity that I think actually presses through to the practical. Here's an example of having clarity on what difference does my spirituality make on a specific part of my life. I'm gonna share this specific example because I heard it a year ago and I still think about it almost every day and it also had a deep effect on the life of my 20-year-old son who shared it with me. My son Isaiah is 20. He came home from college last May for just a few days at the end of a month of spring football practice. A whole month of two-a-day practices, two- or three-hour practices each, he said it was the most intense workouts that he'd ever endured. There were 200 athletes going out for the football team at his college, and they needed to break it down to about 100. So the point of spring practice is really to see who wants to be there. I think the technical term is weed out, actually. And so he was home for a few days after spring practice, before the summer practices were gonna begin in June. We were hiking at the American River Canyon, and we were talking about that. And later in the conversation, I said, Hey, is there anybody? I was asking about his faith, and I said, Is there anybody whose faith you respect on the team? And he said, Yeah, actually, there's this one dude who's Muslim, and I really respect his faith. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. I said, What, what about that? What about his faith do you respect? And he tells me the story that during these two- or three-hour practices, twice a day for the entire month, this young man would not drink water because it was Ramadan. It was the month of fasting. If you're, a, if you're a Muslim, it didn't matter what you were doing, trying out for a football team or not. Isaiah described the suffering that this young man endured as he ran wind sprints and climbed up ladders and did all kinds of crazy football things and would not accept drinks of water and didn't eat in between practices. Um, Now, think what you want about his faith or the way he's practicing it. That's not my point. My point is, this kid had clarity. (laughs) He had clarity on one thing. If you're Muslim in April of 2022, you're not eating during the daylight hours, and you're not drinking, apparently, whether you're a football player or not. My point is, if you know what difference Jesus makes in your life, then following Jesus will make a difference. If you have no clarity on Christian principles that speak to the various parts of your life, then you're going to end up with a faith that doesn't really matter because you don't know what difference it makes. And that's a really frustrating and defeating experience. To be hearing about Christianity as this thing that's supposed to be life-changing and you don't even know how it applies To your specific part of life. So, as I was saying at the start, several months ago, addressing a few questions on Sunday mornings sounded like really specific life questions, like these sound like a great idea. Increasingly, friends, I gotta tell you, the last couple weeks, I have felt really challenged by this series. My main concern is that um, these kind of topical teachings can feel like how-to uh, teachings, like moralistic teachings, like here's five simple steps to a successful life. I think it smacks of being overly simplistic. And, and my bigger concern is that it can't help but elevate the teacher to the place of master as though the, the person talking about, in this case, marriage, has it all figured out. I want to just tell you, I am in the trenches on this. I am. I got mud on my face. I'm, I'm in the trenches every day on this. Um, And so I am not trying to present insights as one who has it all figured out. And it's important for me to position myself in that way in this context. Uh, I'm going to be in the trenches with you for the next several weeks battling it out, talking about parenting uh, with my son here, talking about marriage with my wife here, and uh, working through difficulties that are difficult. Honestly, I think I'm less confident about my insights and abilities at this stage in my life than I was 20 years ago when it comes to some of these things. I was teaching about marriage in my 20s. That was ridiculous. <laughs> All right. Uh, I, was, uh, I was a really profound parent when my kids were five and three. Um, <clears throat> I Ask me anything. I had a good idea about it. Uh, I'm 50, in case we haven't met. I'm 50. My wife, Carmen, and I have been married for 27 years. We have three beautiful kids, and it's good. And it's challenging every day, every day. And I need a lot of help. At 25, I thought I had things figured out. I'm 50 now and I'm battling in the trenches and I know I need a lot of help. And while tips and tricks and helps, I think, are of some value, what I deeply need, and I hope that this resonates, I think what we all need is a sense of what are the core principles that I need to and um, incorporate into my life as a follower of Jesus with clarity. Um, what should I be clear on in terms of what difference my faith makes in the dis- different areas of my life? So, we're starting this new series today, three weeks. Um, something we typically don't do is just topical teachings, but we're gonna do a teaching on marriage, a teaching on money next week, and a teaching on parenting. And my hope is to help us see some core principles of the Christian faith that should make a difference in the way we're living in specific parts of our lives. This is not a how-to series. This is more of a principles of series. This is more of a theology of series. And I just pray that this stirs up good conversations at home, good conversations in your home groups, and that you find the clarity to be helpful as you pursue a spirituality that actually makes a difference in your real life. And that you, as you seek to completely surrender every part of your life to Jesus. Okay, so with that, here is a very brief theology of marriage. Are you ready? Woo! I love this stuff. For the Christian, marriage is the primary symbol or picture of God's intended relationship with his people. Say it again. For the Christian... According to the Bible, marriage is the primary symbol or picture of God's intended relationship with God's people. So, in other words, this relationship that I have with my wife Carmen is a picture of, is a symbol of, is a way of learning about my relationship with God. Now, for you who are married or have been married, raise your hand if you can relate to the idea that marriage is sometimes difficult. Okay, look at this. So right out of the gate, sometimes, <clears throat> sometimes occasionally, right out of the gate, most of us have a problem. But listen, we don't have a problem with a Christian understanding of marriage. What we have a problem with is a fairy tale about marriage. Okay. Our problem is with expectations that were established through years of happily ever after horse-drawn carriage endings to movies that we watched as kids. Our problem is with the fairy tale that supports a, get this, 62-plus billion-dollar-a-year U.S. wedding industry. Okay. According to the fairy tale, marriage is about being happy. And according to the Bible, marriage is about being Holy. And because fairy tales are pretend, marriages in real life aren't actually about living happily ever after. And because the Bible is real, marriage in real life can be really difficult. And that shouldn't be a surprise to anyone unless you're trying to live in the fairy tale. The fact that marriage can be really challenging makes a lot of sense and is actually a good thing. If we realize and remember that our relationship with this one other person, which is, yes, a good thing in and of itself, is actually about more than that relationship with that one other person. Marriage is a picture of something that is much bigger than marriage. Marriage is a picture of union with God. I just walked up to you and pushed you into the deep end of the pool with all of your clothes on, is what I just did. Okay. And maybe you were uh, willing and interested in getting in the water at some point today, but um, I just, you were thinking maybe we'd go more gradually. We just simply don't have the time. So I want to like put it right to you, right out of the gate. We just start with the end in mind. I think this is helpful in most situations. Doesn't mean we have to instantly reach the end. It means we got, we're got we going to grow towards the end. But we can't even make progress towards the end if we don't know which way we're headed, right? So we got to start with the end in mind, and we can start with the end in mind when it comes to marriage because we've got the Bible, and the Bible includes a vision of heaven and this picture of the way that it will be when all broken things are restored. And the picture that we are given of that great day, capital G, capital D, is A picture of a wedding feast. Did you know this? Where this is in the last book of the Bible, second to the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 21, where the city of God, the community of God, the restored people of God are compared to a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. This is what John writes in Revelation 21. He hears a loud voice from the throne of heaven saying, Now the dwelling of God is with people, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. Which is a reiteration of the covenant, which Melissa referred to a minute ago, or the relational promise that was established by God with Abraham in the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis 12 where God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And then God initiates a covenant ceremony, kind of like a wedding, where the groom says, I, Nathan, take you, Carmen, to be my wedded wife. And she responds by saying something just the same, making the same radical, unconditional, nearly reckless promise, knowing we got a ton of challenges ahead and there's all kinds of things that are going to be hard and we're going to do it together, right? So we end with this marriage image as a metaphor for the union between people and God in the new heaven and the new earth. We back up to almost the very beginning, Genesis 12, we also get this marriage metaphor, this dynamic between God and humanity established like a marriage. And then if we go all the way to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, the origin story which, by the way, is the other place you can go for the big picture. For the big picture, you can go to the end or you can go to the beginning. The end shows us the way it's supposed to be at the end. The beginning shows us the vision for it in the start. Both are great places to go for a big picture. Um, But we can go back to the beginning in the first book of the Bible in Genesis. And what does it say? It's it's, It's a creation poem. It's the story from the Bible of how everything comes to be. And here's how it begins. In the beginning, God created And after God creates light and land and sky and sea and plants and animals, in verse 26, it says, Then God said, let us, that's interesting, make mankind in our, plural, image, in our likeness. It's got early Trinitarian vision here. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. My point here is to reach back as far as possible to see that we were made for union with God. We were made in the image of God who is a loving, creative relationship. One God, three persons. And that the image of God is best pictured in a human relationship between two people who are different than one another, but like one another, are both made in God's image. And when the two become one flesh, they image God. Is a married relationship the only picture of union with God? No. It's not. There's all kinds of beautiful images of union with God, like a father and a child, like a vine and a branch, like eating bread, like drinking wine. In addition, there's this rich and profound Christian tradition modeled by Jesus and by Paul and by many devout Christians throughout history, which basically just says, I'm going to skip over the marriage metaphor entirely and just go right to espousing myself directly to God. Which is beautiful. In fact, a strong argument can be made from the teachings of Paul that being single, which is what we call that, is preferable spiritually because it allows for just this undistracted devotion. Paul, who is not married, Paul, who is single, also writes about the beauty of marriage, though. It's not one or the other. And at the end of his longest teaching on marriage, about husbands and wives, he says, and this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So of the several great images about union with God that we see throughout the Bible, this image of marriage just keeps coming up. It's in the first chapter of the Bible. It's in the last chapter of the Bible. Marriage is presented as something that is good in and of itself, but more than that, as a metaphor for Christ's relationship with people, for God's relationship with the church. All right, so that's a very brief theology of marriage. And and with all theology, as with all theology, we should say, so what? So what difference does this make? If we return to our first question, what difference does being a Christian or following Jesus make in the various parts of my life? And if we take marriage as just one of the parts of some of our lives... One thing that stands out is that the biblical understanding of marriage, and by biblical understanding of marriage, I don't mean historical understanding of marriage or cultural understanding of marriage or ethnic understanding of marriage. I mean theological understanding of marriage is that the Bible understands marriage as a holy relationship. And we hear that and we think, oh, do you mean because it's so good, it's so sacred that it's holy? Yes, but primarily that's not what it means. It means because it's so intense and because it's so constant and because it's so all about the other that it challenges you to become holy. Marriage is a sanctifying relationship. It is a relationship that has the power to make you holy. Or to use different words, marriage will reveal your selfishness and invite you to become less selfish. Every day, marriage will either drive the selfishness out of you or your selfishness will be chosen and it will then drive you out of marriage or at least unity in marriage. You're made to be with someone uh, who is different than you, but, in, but like you is made in the image of God. So to sum up this part, if you spend the next three months of your life reading just popular uh, co- like magazines, articles, and stuff online about marriage, you will emerge in three months with this conviction. Marriage is all about me and my happiness. If instead you go into a cave with the Bible for the next three months, you're going to come out with the conviction That marriage is about total restoration of a loving relationship between God and God's people, and your marriage with another person is a school in which you get to learn how to participate in that bigger picture. If my view of marriage is that it is mostly about me and my happiness, then then my marriage will prepare me for heaven, as long as heaven is all about me and my happiness, Uh, but I don't think it is. Um, if eternal life is more about union with God, who is my creator, my savior, my sustainer, if relationship with God is the ultimate purpose of my life, then all of my life, my friends, my work, my children, our church, and my marriage are really just contributing parts of that ultimate purpose of moving me towards, mar- or towards union with God. So they are all parts of this big workshop we call life, which is where I grow more and more into the image that God has created me to be, more and more into the man that God has created to me. Or I don't, because I refuse to allow my faith to make a difference in various parts of my life. You with me so far? That was the long first part. I have a few seconds left, a few minutes left for the last part. Let me wrap up with six Quickly, six Christian principles for marriage. These are not helpful tips. These are basic principles for marriage as understood from a biblical perspective, okay? Number one uh, principle is honor. Um, What difference does being a Christian make in the context of marriage? Well, as a Christian, I'm called to honor my wife, I'm called to honor my spouse as a child of God who is made in God's image. To honor somebody means to treat them with high respect, right? With great esteem. One of my sisters told me that her husband every morning gets up and brews coffee and then pours her a cup, walks into the bedroom where she's still in bed and sets it on the table next to her side of the bed. Which is like, that's well done, right? Well done. It's impressive. Um, We could say, We could tend to think, like, how great for her. And it probably is great for her. Or maybe it's just as it should be, right? You know who it's really great for? It's really great for her husband, who is learning through marriage how to honor somebody higher than himself. That's who it's really great for. We might think, gosh, that must make her so happy. And it does make her happy. That's why she told me. But we should also think, I bet that's making him more holy, Because it is. Follow me? Because he is practicing honoring somebody else first, before himself. First thing. It's beautiful. Here's the second principle. Mutual submission. The Apostle Paul begins his most famous passage on marriage, which is often quoted incompletely with this sentence. This is how it begins. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this sentence applies to the church in general. We are called to submit to one another. I'm called to say, you go ahead, you go first. We'll we'll, we'll use your idea. What do you think we should do? And then this principle becomes more particular the more particular our relationships become. In other words, it's relatively easy to submit to the group Do you sort of agree with the majority of the group, which you probably agree with? It's more difficult to submit to one other individual like your spouse because there's just one, there's not a vote, and there's no alternative, right? Marriage is where submission is the most specific and therefore the most difficult and therefore the most beautiful. What does Paul write? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Mutual submission We are learning, friends, we're learning by submitting to another how to submit to Christ. This is just real life. This is what difference it makes. Here's a third Christian principle for marriage. Sacrificial service. Is service really service if it's for your own benefit? When our kids were younger, we watched the Pixar movie Up like a hundred times. And one of the main characters is this chubby little wilderness scout named Russell. And he's earning all his badges for his, you know, his, his little club or whatever. And he knocks at the door of the 78-year-old man, Carl Fredrickson. And he asks, are you in any need of assistance today, sir? And this crabby old man says, no. He says, I could help you cross the street. And he says, no. I could help you cross your lawn? No. I could help you cross your porch? No. (laughs) And he says, I gotta help you cross something, right? Everyone recognizes, I think, the value of service. We try to teach service. Christians follow Jesus, whose service came through great sacrifice. And so my definition for service has got to be informed by the the one that I serve uh, and follow, Christ who models a a level of service that is by definition sacrificial. It is sacrificial. A fourth principle is radical exclusive devotion. Monogamous marriage was held up as a critical element to to marriage by early Christian leaders. In the New Testament, exclusive devotion to one. As Paul was traveling around and starting new churches, he required leaders of those churches to be, quote, a husband of one wife. And not only was this unusual culturally, because polygamy was still being practiced by various cultures, but this was important theologically, because it modeled a right relationship with God, which is faithfulness to one. Radical exclusive devotion. A fifth principle of Christian marriage is stability. Increasingly, the consumerism of our commercial culture has seeped into our relationships where consumerism is the most destructive. And the only antidote to consumeristic approaches to relationships, especially marriage, is a residential contentedness. In other words, stability says... I am here, I am staying, you can count on that, stability says. I'm here, I'm staying, and you can count on it. Stability says, you don't have to be afraid that I might leave because I become unhappy about something that you do or don't do. Stability is powerful in marriage. And stability is essential in marriage if marriage is to reflect in some way the relationship between people and God. This God who says, I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you. This God who says, come to me, you who are weary, burdened, I will give you rest. So there's a lot of ways that we could practice stability. Marriage is perhaps the most challenging and therefore the most effective context of learning and living stability. And then here's a final. It's probably the most important Christian principle for marriage. It's grace. Marriage, like maybe nothing else, will reveal our need for grace and will provide maybe dozens of times every day opportunities to extend grace to somebody else. Marriage can be so beautiful. And marriage, because it is an all-of-life with one real-life person, can be so challenging. But every single challenge is an opportunity to live in grace. We absolutely must learn to live in grace. And friends, we can learn to live in grace. For the Christian, marriage is a metaphor, it's a picture, it's a symbol of God's relationship with people. But marriage, like everything else, has been broken by sin, right? So many of you feel defeated in the area of marriage. So many of us, our deepest wounds have come in the area of marriage. Marriage is so close to the heart of God, it will and of course has been since the very beginning assaulted by the enemy of God's beloved, you, the church. Of course marriage is a place where um, many of us feel like there is defeat and brokenness and disappointment. When sin and, sin and brokenness is in the whole world, and when sin and brokenness enters into marriage, it's especially destructive, it hurts, it is sad, it's frustrating, and it needs to be restored. And grace is that first step that we take to join with God in the restoration of all things. Grace is the redemptive response to the brokenness that's affecting the whole world, and yes, even our marriages. Grace is receiving grace, and receiving grace is how we join with Jesus in his great mission of the restoration of all things, including marriage, including your marriage, okay. which is about so much more than your marriage. Okay. And then on that great day, capital G, capital D, when we finally see past all the annoyances and the frustrations and the hurts that we've caused, and the pain that we have experienced. We will see the bigger picture, and we will participate in the full glory of the true wedding feast, and we will know the restoration of all things. Amen? Amen. Jesus will say to us, to all, behold, I am making all things new. Let's pray together.